Amen. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, as Pastor Bob alluded to, please turn to Acts chapter 28. Me, Miss Betty, we love to see your beautiful face, but we'd like to hear you sing the last song, so I'm going to make sure I get these back up here as well. If not, she'll just be standing here smiling at us. We end, end today. Acts chapter 28. That's where we will be this morning. It's a joy to begin the Advent season with each of you. I love this time of year. It's a joy to worship the Lord with you during this season. Standing before the House of Commons in the midst of World War II, Winston Churchill rose to deliver some needed, some welcomed good news. Um, Following multiple defeats, the first major victory for the Allies had taken place at the Battle of Egypt. Churchill reported that a Quote, a new experience had arrived. A remarkable and definite victory had come, he said. But then bringing his report, his news to a conclusion, Churchill famously concluded, quote, not now, uh, now this is not the end. It is not the, even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And though a great victory had been won, that victory marked The end of that victory marked the beginning of a new reality for the Allies moving forward in the war. As already been alluded to, church, we have made it. After a half, after a year and a half, we've come to the end of the book of Acts this morning. If you're a guest with us, welcome. You come to the end of our study. We typically study through books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Acts for a year and a half, and you get to kind of wrap it up with us this morning. But a lot has taken place during our time in this study. It was something I tried to reflect over even this week during Thanksgiving. We celebrated five years as a church plant going through the book of Acts. Uh, Multiple weddings have taken place. Not a few babies have been born. We've said goodbye to dear family members of the hill. We've welcomed many new members to the hill. Some of us have lost loved ones. And walked through some of the darkest seasons of our life this past year and a half. When we began this study, some of us in the room were walking in rebellion. Some bound by our sin, headed to an eternity separated from the Lord. But now you know the redeeming love of the Savior and the reconciling work of the gospel in your heart. And this last year and a half reminds us of the power of God's word. And the sustaining power of the gospel in each of our lives. And by God's grace, this morning we get to turn that final page of this wonderful book called Acts and bring our study to an end. And it's an ending that does mark a great victory. The gospel, the message of the risen Christ, is now proclaimed in Rome. What began in Jerusalem, expanded into Judea and Samaria, has made its way to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus promised. It's a great victory. The power of the risen Christ is known. The power of the risen Christ is being proclaimed even in Rome. However, Rome was not the finish line. Rome represented an intersection, we might say, or a a highway to the nations. The end of this book marks a new beginning. The victory recorded in Acts chapter 28 ushers in a new reality that every one of us in this room are recipients of. While Rome was considered the center of the world at this time, Rome also, most importantly, touched the rest of the world at this time. 
Rome marked the end of a great gospel victory, but more importantly, it marked the beginning of a new reality for the church, which each of us find ourselves in this morning. So as we come to Luke's final scene this morning, we must conclude in a manner similar to Winston Churchill, this is not the end. It's not in the beginning of the end. But perhaps it is the end of the beginning. Here's my main last final idea from the book of Acts to serve this text, but also I think to serve the entire book of Acts as we close, that as the church, we extend the story of Acts by proclaiming the message of our King and the power of the Spirit to the ends of the earth. As a church, we extend the story of Acts by proclaiming the message of our King and the power of the Spirit to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 17. Please put your eyes there. Hear the final words of this wonderful narrative written by our brother Luke, by the Holy Spirit. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Rome into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to stand with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you. What your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning to evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Father, we pause after the reading of your word, as we've done numerous times over the last year and a half from this wonderful narrative. God, we've been blessed. We're thankful. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that your word is not just a record of something that happened in the past, but it is living active in our lives as we've seen testimony of over the last season in this book. God, even this morning, Do again, encounter, let us encounter afresh the risen Christ through the preaching and the proclamation of your word. God, help us to see, help us to hear, help us to understand, help our hearts to be alive 
with affection for Jesus all the more. In his name we pray, amen. Considering the journey we've been on the past few, we could say the past year, but the past few months, we should say, as we've trekked our way through these last few chapters, I aim to be simple this morning. And in considering these 14 verses as we close out, I I'm going to kind of make three stops along the way, and then I'll add a few words of final application for us to consider. And we begin first this morning with the final scene as we see it in these verses 17 to 22. After the the great sea adventure which we unpacked last week following the direction of Paul, the crew, and all on board, they arrived safely in Malta where they spent the winter When the weather broke, they boarded the ship of Alexandria and eventually they landed in Rome. Given Paul's proven character, he was allowed to stay away from the other prisoners with just one soldier guarding him, as we saw last week. However, rather than taking any extended downtime, as you and I might think would be warranted and we might want to do ourselves, just three days after after arriving, the apostle presumes his normal missionary strategy of beginning to preach the gospel and do so with the Jews. Verse 17. After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered he said to them, Brothers, though I had nothing, have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem in the hands of the Roman. Notice Paul addresses these leaders as brothers, referring to our people and to our fathers. As a Jew speaking to his Jewish brothers, Paul lays out the facts of his innocence and he also lays out his need to have to appeal to Caesar. Verse 18, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, set me free, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, he said, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, Paul had every right to accuse the Jews of mistreatment. He had every right to accuse them of breaking the law, which they had done multiple times. But he says here, I had no charge against my nation. It's evidence again, as we've been going through, that Paul's, the priority of Paul's life was not personal justice. It was the proclamation of Jesus. To testify to the gospel of God's grace, as he said back in chapter 20, verse 24. Paul wants his people to believe and follow Jesus. So in verse 20... He clarifies why he's called this meeting. He says it's not to complain. It's not to bring any charge against the nation. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you, to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Paul says, I have a message for you, which is why I'm wearing these chains. The hope of Israel, the very thing the prophets pointed to, and that you, as good Jews, are longing for, has arrived. The advent of a new order has come. The day of resurrection and restoration which the prophets put in your hearts, it's here. And it's that message that has landed me in these chains. And it's because of that message that I've gathered you here today. Verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. We desire to hear from you what your views are. With regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. 
So apparently no formal letters have followed or arrived Paul outlining the details of his arriving in Rome, perhaps because there was a delay due to the winter months. It was hard for Paul to travel. It was hard for letters to travel. But neither had any gossip or any kind of news come about circling, circulating uh, in the city concerning Paul. Therefore, they seem open to hearing Paul's message. However, they, while they haven't heard about Paul, they've most assuredly heard about Christianity, which they describe as a sect or a cult. They say that everywhere it's spoken against. So desiring to hear more, they decide on a date to come and hear Paul present his message. And with that, the final scene of the book of Acts is set. It's a scene that serves really as a rather anticlimactic conclusion to this book. If you've, been, if you've never read the book of Acts before, if you've been following along with us the past year, or especially the past few months, you could possibly get to the end of the book this morning and think there has to be a page missing in Acts. You'd be expecting some grand scene with Paul standing before Caesar, making his defense before the whole city of Rome. Maybe a great sermon or a, a public stand before Caesar. Something similar to Rocky IV and the way he effectively ended the Cold War with his speech. But nothing of that sort's here. Yeah, he, he likes it. Like. Instead, we get Paul from his own prison cell, at his own expense, gathering a Jewish crowd to hear the message of Jesus. If you lived in Rome during this time, you probably would have never even heard of this meeting. Probably would have never even heard of Paul. And yet, he possesses the very words of eternal life. It's a fascinating scene. It really does point to the nature of God's kingdom and the power of the gospel. The nature of God's kingdom is determined by the nature of its king. We're celebrating the fact this time of year that Jesus was he came, he stepped down from heaven, he took upon flesh, and he was born in the backwater town of Galilee, raised there. Everybody knew the rumors that surrounded his birth, or at least Mary, and this is Mary and Joseph's boy. What good could possibly come out of Galilee, they said. Isaiah tells us that he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, he had no majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Nobody looked at Jesus and said, there's the king. There's the Messiah. Jesus wasn't born like a king. Jesus didn't live like a king. Jesus didn't speak like a king. And Jesus most assuredly didn't die like a king. While many mourned Jesus' death, a few days later, most merely moved on. But the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a mustard seed. Meaning the nature of God's kingdom is easily missed through the lenses of this world. This final scene of Paul's life testifies to the glory of his king. Testifies to the power of the gospel. The book of Acts is a record of the supernatural power of the gospel. Jesus is the resurrected king of glory and nothing can stop his message of salvation going to the nations. It's been the message on every page of this narrative. And if you want to see it, if you want to know it, 
If you want to experience the real world-shaping power, look to the record of the book of Acts. And yet, that power that we, we peer into remains rather peculiar to the economy of man. That power won't be found in the pockets of the prestige. It won't be found through the power of the world's religious leaders. It comes to a small, scared crowd in an upper room. They come to a lame, overlooked beggar standing at the temple gate who is not allowed to enter. It can be found in the testimony of a dying man preaching a message as he's being stoned to death, Stephen. It comes through the testimony of an Ethiopian eunuch, an outcast. It came and it's to be seen in the salvation of a slave girl who we don't even know her name, a Philippian jailer, or many other peculiar scenes throughout this book. The power of the gospel and the message of Acts is easily missed through the kingdom of man. So as we close out this book, I just want to say to you, if if you are a person and you value the notoriety, the success, the making a name for yourself, the being known in this world, in the final chapter of the book of Acts, the reality of the gospel of the kingdom, the message of Jesus could potentially be a complete letdown for you. But if you learn to see with spiritual eyes the true nature of God's kingdom, the glory of its king and the power of the gospel, what Luke presents here makes perfect sense. And in verse 23, the Jews arrive to hear Paul's message, which receives a divided hearing, as we see next, a divided hearing. When they had appointed a day for him, verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. This group has known, uh, has grown from just the Jewish leaders to now it's, Luke describes it as, a, as, as greater numbers. It says from morning to evening, verse 24, he, Paul, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Now, we've been saying over the last couple of weeks, the mirror reading of the life of Paul from our Savior. We've watched it all along the way as he's set his face to Jerusalem. We've seen this mirroring of Paul. And like Jesus, who on the Emmaus Road interpreted the Scriptures from the Law and the Prophets, all that concerned himself, Paul here expounds the Scriptures from morning till evening, doing the exact same thing as his Savior. And Luke summarized this as he He summarized it as he testified to the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus, that Jesus is the king. And Paul's source material was the same as Jesus, the law and the prophets. Paul explained, Paul expounded from Scripture, from the law, from the prophets, from morning to evening. Very detailed statement there. It tells us, it reminds us that at the heart of the Great Commission, at the center of the missionary task, And on the foundational level of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ is the task of preaching, of expounding God's word, of persuading, of convincing from the word of God the things concerning Jesus. Whatever a church does, however the task of a missionary is defined, at the center of it, if at the center of it is not the explanation and instruction or 
exposition of the Word of God, it is not in line with the New Testament. It's not everything the church is called to do. It's not everything a missionary is called to do. But it is foundational to everything else that they are called to do. The content of Paul's message centered on the kingdom of God. A theme that serves as a bookend to this book. Turn back to Acts chapter 1. If you remember, Acts chapter 1 began, we saw the link between this figure named Theophilus who Luke is writing to, and he talked about all that he wrote in his Gospel of Luke that began to write, that began the teachings of Jesus, and now he's saying the continuation of the teachings and the life of Jesus in the book of Acts. And as the resurrected Lord, the disciples come to ask him an important and theologically loaded question in chapter 1, verse 6. We see it there. It said, So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This phrase, this understanding of the kingdom begins the book of Acts with this question. And we see Paul two times in these final chapters, it says, explain that he's preaching the kingdom and explaining Jesus to be at the center of it. The nature of the kingdom of God is bound up with the person and work of Jesus. Something at that time, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples could not truly comprehend until following Pentecost. And it's this relationship between Jesus and the kingdom that has been central throughout this book. Just a few references. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, uh, it says, But when they believed Philip, this is Philip preaching, as he, he describes his preaching as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus says, then they were baptized, both men and women. Just a few verses later, we're going to end the final words of this book. says, speaking of Paul, in just a few verses, he says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The final words of this book. So by kingdom is meant God's kingly reign. God sits as king on his throne over the universe. His kingdom and his reign governs all things. And since God's purpose for the world is to save a people for himself and to renew the world for his people, his kingly rule implies a saving and redeeming activity on our behalf. This explains why the coming of the kingdom in the New Testament is called the good news. God's kingdom, His rule and reign over the world through the salvation and restoration of His people was the very hope of Israel. And God had decided the kingdom of God to be revealed through the glory of a crucified and risen King. So Paul's preaching was a demonstration that all the promises of God of the kingdom are contained in Jesus. And he says, as testified in the law and the prophets. We've noted these as we've went along, but the new creation which the prophets longed to look and look forward to, it had arrived in Jesus and the new birth. The resurrection that Ezekiel spoke to has come. The new exodus that Isaiah spoke of has come to pass in Jesus. The new covenant promised in Jeremiah is fulfilled. The new city that God promised is becoming a reality. All of God's promises have been realized, at least in part, in Jesus. 
But again, as mentioned earlier, to see this king and the reality of his kingdom requires a spiritual response. Verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. The message of Jesus as prophesied, remember the words of Simeon in the temple when he held up the baby Jesus. He said that this one will unify but both divide the house of Israel. As prophesied, the message of Jesus both unites but it also divides. Some were convinced. Others rejected this message in unbelief. In verse 25, Paul provides a theological explanation for this unbelief which The text says, sends this group home. Verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Quote, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Notice Paul now separates himself from those who disbelieve. He says, your fathers. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their ears and hear with their see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them in Paul's exposition of the scriptures he he quotes the prophet Isaiah concerning God's rebuke of Israel in the 8th century but I do want you to notice How Paul introduces God's message spoken through the words of Isaiah in 25. He says, quote, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. We go to many places in our Bibles to understand how the biblical authors understood their Bibles. But while quoting the words of Isaiah, Paul identifies the Holy Spirit as the. As the primary author of Scripture. When we read the words of Isaiah, when we read any other human author in the Bible, we are reading the words of God Himself. And given the Scripture's divine authorship, God's message, He says, it was not bound by the 8th century. It was not bound in history past. God's Word is never bound by any cultural moment. If its authority was derived merely from man, that may be true. Since God is the ultimate authority and author of the Bible, his word is not bound by any moment in time, by any cultural expression. Paul's understanding of the inspiration of the scriptures caused him to aim the words of Isaiah from the 8th century at these Jews in Rome during the 1st century. And by doing so, Paul was aligning himself with the prophets of old. By stating that the same rejection of God's word in the past, he's saying is happening right now in this moment right in front of us. Or to state it even more succinctly, he's saying to reject the message of Jesus is to reject the law and the prophets. That's what he's saying. Like Isaiah, Paul had been commissioned to go and preach with what seemed like an impossible task. He was called like Isaiah to speak a message to a people lacking the capacity to see, to hear, even understand. But the true diagnosis, he says, was much deeper than their ears or their eyes or their minds. He says it was their unbelief. It was a matter of their heart that was the real issue. 
It says they had hearts that had grown dull or calloused. The word literally speaks of a, a, a heart that's grown fat or a heart that's grown thick. Illustrating um, a heart so full that it is unresponsive. And it's deadness or its unresponsiveness is expressed in one's inability to see, to hear, to think spiritually. They're unresponsive. They're unable to turn to God for healing, it says. So Paul is offering a warning to Israel that they are repeating their past just as predicted. It's a warning to them and to us that to refuse to, refuse to hear the Word of God is to risk reaching a point where it will never be heard. There's a straightforward application here for all of us, which is don't play with the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. Hear the Word of God. But there's also, I think, a warning here for every one of us in this room, particularly as we close out this series through the book of Acts, that proximity to the things of God can be a dangerous and even damning thing apart from true repentance and faith in God. These leaders represent the highest mark of religious involvement, religious devotion. And yet Jesus tells them, you do not know the Lord. You're bound by your sin and you need healing. Your heart is dull and unresponsive. Religious involvement does us no good apart from spiritual healing. And quoting Isaiah, Paul says to these highly religious people, they need God's healing, which demands their turning. And spiritual healing assumes what? Spiritual sickness. Our problem is not merely external in the actions we commit. The Bible's clear, our problem is internal. Meaning we have a spiritual disposition that lends us to not obeying the Lord. We sin because we are sinners. Our hearts are dull, they're fat, they're spiritually thick. We need God's healing, we need God's restoration, we need God's regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's not a, that's not a message that Paul made up. That's the message all throughout the text of Scripture. The prophet Isaiah spoke of a day when God would remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Jeremiah spoke of a, a day when God would write His law on our hearts, meaning He would give us the capacity, the affection, the ability to truly know the Lord and to obey His Word. This is the call of the New Testament. This was the hope of Israel. This was the point of the Old Testament. That God would regenerate, bring to resurrection, to life. This is what the prophet Ezekiel was, that God was telling him as he looked over the, the valley of the dry bones. And he said, breathe upon them. And come to know, this is the whole house of Israel that's dead, that needs life. Beloved, if you're here today and your Christianity merely is summed up in your association with a group of people, 
it's merely summed up in some religious activity you've done in the past or that you're trying so hard to do today, I would say to you with all of the love and compassion I have, hear the text of Scripture. You need spiritual regeneration. Your heart is dull. It is calloused. It is unable to receive spiritual truth apart from God acting on your behalf. Titus says it this way. Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, telling his personal testimony. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Listen to what he says. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not according to your own works, not according to your religious deeds, not according to your own merits, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Beloved, the same sun that hardens clay, softens, melts ice. What is the Word of God doing to you? Don't miss the point of the book of Acts. Don't miss the reality of the new covenant. Don't miss the beauty of Jesus thinking that your religious activity is earning you a place before God. The whole message of the Old Testament, the whole reality of the coming of Jesus, the whole point of the gospel story is that you need God to act on your behalf. You need healing. And it comes, as the text says, by turning, by repenting confessing your sin to the Lord, confessing your inability to save yourself and receiving the cleansing power of the gospel, the healing work of Jesus. There's a divided hearing here. We need the grace of God and the power of the gospel. But there's an unhindered gospel here as we finish this book. Verse 28, Paul responds to Israel's Unbelief with gospel resolve here. Nothing will hinder the message of the risen Christ. That's what we're to take from these final sections. So we've been trekking our way through. Not persecution. Suffering won't stop it. Shipwreck won't stop it. And cold, calloused hearts that won't believe won't stop it. The gospel is not hindered in the least. Verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And we know from Paul's writings in many other places that this is not some sort of statement suggesting Paul's done with the Jews. Throughout the Old Testament, there have always been what we might call two types of Jews. Right? Jews who were part of the covenant by Jews. All Jews were part of the covenant by birth and by right. But to be a Jew meant more than ethnic distinction and birthright. It demanded faith. To be a part of the people of God has always been by grace through faith. When Paul says in Romans 9 that not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel, he's merely reading his Old Testament. There's always been believing 
Israel, unbelieving Israel. Those always been the nation of Israel and the remnant of Israel. Yes, God's promises and covenant are irrevocable, but they are enacted by faith. Those who reject the law and the prophets, though ethnic Jews demonstrate themselves not to be Jews due to their lack of faith. And that faith finds its fulfillment, finds its fruition, finds its finality in Jesus. So by turning to the Gentiles, Paul is not rejecting Israel in the least. Paul is laboring on behalf of Israel, whose message and covenant promises were always meant to extend beyond Israel. Paul is merely stating what the prophets of old and Jesus made clear concerning the unbelief of many of the Jews. Furthermore, as we know from Paul's teaching in Romans 11, his statement is meant to provoke the Jews to believe and being jealous. A jealousy, he says. Furthermore, his statement that he is going to the Gentiles who will listen, that's proven true, beloved. The focus of the gospel proclamation and the growth of the church over the past 2,000 years has been amongst non-Jews, Gentiles. But God is not done with the Jews. As Romans 12 tells us, many have found faith in Jesus today and God intends in the future for a great multitude of Jews to be saved. But this statement, I think, is Paul prodding them not to remain in their rebellion. It would be a shame for you as Jews to miss the hope of Israel while the Gentiles receive it. And Paul's statement confronts every one of us this morning. The gospel is a matter of stewardship. The gospel got to us. And not only did it get to us, but God graciously awakened our hearts. He opened our eyes. He enlightened our minds to believe in the truth of Jesus. God did that through the faithfulness of Paul and many, many others. You know, as we think about the last six chapters of this narrative, the narrative of Paul's life, with all the difficulties, with all the imprisonment, with all the beatings, with all the shipwrecks, all the long journeys, it at least means this for us. It means we got the gospel. The image of the apostle, just imagine it. The apostle Paul swimming to the shore of Malta should sear in our minds and hearts the grace of God towards us in the gospel. Much has been endured. Much has been accomplished. Much has been overcome. That you and I would hear the gospel and believe. So what shall we do with it? For some of us, this may mean giving your life for the advancement of the gospel among an unreached and unengaged language group in the world. This requires language and culture to be learned, the Bible to be translated, and generations of darkness to be penetrated with the preaching of the risen Christ. This may involve suffering, imprisonment, hardship, potentially death. For every one of us, it means prayerfully and financially taking part in this reality, whether God calls us to go or to stay. 
It means for all of us broadening our horizon beyond ourselves to the places where the gospel has not gotten yet. And it most assuredly calls us to actively engage in the world that's in front of us right now. To see neighbors and co-workers and strangers in our city, not as obstacles to navigate, but as people who need to hear the healing power of the gospel and see the beauty of our Savior. We know Jesus because Paul turned to the Gentiles. What shall we do about it? Are we willing to endure, sacrifice, to just do differently? Starting today, that someone might hear the gospel. Now in verse 30, as I said, we come to the final two verses of this incredible book. Look at them again. Let's read them. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. Proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Two years. Paul paid his own expense. Maybe he had monies that were given to him as financial support. Maybe he went back to tent making. We don't know if he was given that freedom. But he paid his own expense. And the text says that he welcomed all who came to see him, preaching his message of the kingdom. With Jesus at the center of it. We know that Paul wrote many of the New Testament writings during this time as well. And this, it says, he did with all boldness. A phrase testifying to the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, for sure. And it says, without hindrance. Paul's imprisonment could not hinder the word of God. So the book of Acts does end with probably the biggest cliffhanger ever. What happened to Paul? Historians are somewhat divided on this. The general consensus is that he was released after two years. Church tradition holds that Paul returned to Rome after the great fire of A.D. 64 when there was much outcry from the people given Nero's failed leadership and needing someone to blame, he chose the Christians to blame. Eusebius, the church father, says that Paul came back shortly after this time when hostility was high, which led to his arrest and eventually his death in prison, his martyrdom. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. And the reason is that from the perspective of the book of Acts, it does not matter whatsoever. The narrative of Acts, the message of the gospel, is not ultimately concerned with Peter, with Paul, with you, with I, or any other human figure. It's concerned with the risen Christ. It's concerned with the expansion of his gospel to all peoples. Whether the message experiences little opposition or extreme persecution, it matters very little. What matters is that the message is being proclaimed faithfully in the power of the Spirit. Jesus himself told his disciples, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. So guess what? The end has not come. So the task of the Great Commission is before us, is each one of our laps. Will we be found faithful like Paul at the close of this book? That's the final question that Luke ends it this way, intending us to feel. For its end, mark the beginning of a new reality for God's people that we partake in even now. 
preaching this gospel in the power of the Spirit despite the circumstances or situations we find ourselves in is the call. And its ending, I think, is meant to provide us with great hope and great motivation as we labor together. If our hope and our motivation is in Paul, then maybe we'll be left bewildered. But if our hope and our motivation is in the risen Christ and the power of the gospel going forward, then we should be highly encouraged because it says here, the last two words, without hindrance. While lots of hindrances will be and are thrown at the the, the preaching of the gospel, things will be difficult. In the end, the power of the risen Christ will not be hindered. It will go forth. God will build His church. We've seen that through the book of Acts at every turn. And the joy of the reality of the book of Acts from this moment here to where we are today to where our Bible ends should bring us great joy. For our Bible ends with you and I, the redeemed, standing in the company of a great people, all ransomed by the blood of the Lamb from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And we will sing to our eternal King, to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And that's how we close this great book of the book of Acts. Father, we thank you for your great grace in the gospel and bringing us the wonderful reality of the gospel message. God, as we often do, or I do, and I'm sure my brothers and sisters do, we won't say this with our lips, but we feel it in the recesses of our heart. We tend to believe that there's something in us that merits your response to us. God, forgive us of that reality. Remind us the truth that if you had not acted on our behalf, we would have no hope. If you had not intersected Paul on the way to Damascus, he would never have found you. He would have never become the apostle. God, if you had not intersected every single person in the book of Acts, none would know you. And God, if you had not intersected every single one of us who know you in this room, no one would be able to proclaim the name of Christ. So God, we thank you that our Jesus died, but that our Jesus forever lives. We thank you that our Jesus rules and reigns from the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and executing His sovereign purposes in our lives and in this world. And God, we're thankful that based upon Your providential plan, You've made us into Your people, the church. And You've entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. God, that we, simple people, would be used by you to make the very message of the gospel known. 
God, before we ever receive conviction of how we are, we do need to do better, because that's true, let us first feel the beautiful privilege that it is, that you've sought us out, you've called us to yourself, you've entered us into the service of you, the King. And God, do equip us. Help us lean in, not to our personal abilities or our the confidence we can muster up, but lean into the power of the Spirit. And with all boldness, trust that your gospel will not be hindered. It may be, it may not go forth in the person that we're speaking to right now. But God, ultimately, your gospel will go forth. That all the gospel will go forth to the nations and then the end will come. So Lord, we're so thankful for what you've done in our lives over this past year and a half. We pray it would bear fruit for generations to come. And God, as we stand to sing now, we do want to behold you. Help us to sing of the beauty of our Savior as we end this wonderful book. In Jesus' name, amen.